The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted to welcome my guest today, Mr. John Steinman. He is the producer and host of the internationally syndicated TV web series, radio show, and podcast titled Deconstructing Dinner, Reconstructing Our Food System. And he is also the author of the book we're going to be discussing today titled Grocery Store, The Promise of Food Co-ops in the Age of Grocery Giants. Welcome, John. Thanks, Melinda. Thanks for having me. I'm really curious about this topic. Of course, most consumers get their groceries from supermarkets. And here we have an alternative. And before we dive into the substance of this book, I want to ask you, who did you write this book for? Yeah, who did I write this book for? You know, I'd, originally it was motivated by my interest in the local food movement or maybe more broadly the good food movement. I really felt like having immersed myself in it as a journalist and then also through my own lifestyle choices and even just on the ground through some of the community development work I did in my community in British Columbia where I was involved in at least a half dozen different local food initiatives, I started to recognize there was a real gap in the dialogue and the conversation that was happening around good food and how to get more good food into more people's kitchens. And the gap there was the grocery store. The conversation generally was leaning in the direction of how do we support more CSAs in our communities, community support agriculture, how do we get more farmers markets in our communities, how do we encourage more people to grow food at home. And all of these areas are incredible tools to change our food system and to particularly support food makers. But the one place where we're buying most of our food is at retailers. So roughly 92% of all of the food we purchase for the home is purchased at retailers. So it really felt like this was missing from that conversation. And so originally, this was the group of eaters that I really wanted to write this book for, so that those who are already involved in this movement, which I do believe it very much is a movement, could have this tool as well in helping shape our food systems. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because you present alternatives that maybe many of us have not even thought of or considered before. Before we dive into co-op specifically, I love that you begin your book first with a dedication to seven generations, but then you also define a food system, which I think is brilliant because we use this terminology, but I don't think most people know what we're talking about. So can you just describe a food system? How should we be thinking about that? Yeah, it's a term, or when I share it, it's not necessarily one that is easily understood, but just to describe it in a few sentences, it's every process that gets food from either the farm or from the sea or perhaps in the forest, depending on how that's being collected, and then into our kitchens, into our restaurants, 
into any food service establishments. So every process along that chain of events is considered the food system. And within that, we have people, we have infrastructure, we have businesses, we have buildings, and we have distribution. Within all of that is the food system. And so the piece that I focus on in the book is the grocery store piece of the food system. And generally, I think those of us who are concerned about our food and where it's coming from and the nutritional profile of our food, we generally look at big agriculture, big food, the Nestle's, the Coca-Cola's of the world, the McDonald's of the world, and yet there aren't many conversations about the Kroger's of the world and the Safeways and the Albertsons. So this, again, is where I wanted to focus my attention. Mm -hmm. Well, the consolidation of the grocery industry has been quite remarkable over time. And I'm not sure people realize the full impact of that and how few choices we really have. And decades ago, I would have been one of the 92% of people who predominantly bought my food at the grocery store. And now I really don't go to the grocery store very much. I buy most of my food directly from farmers when and if I can. But I am quite cognizant of the fact that that is a luxury. And when I travel and when I go to different communities, I am always aware of where do people get their food? And I love your Deconstructing Dinner series because, of course, that took a deep dive into just the quality of the food and where it comes from and why we should care. This book takes a deep dive into the networks of providers. So what I thought was so interesting about this book was that you talk about co-ops and you define them and you say that 74% of Americans, three in four, don't have a clue about what a co-op is. So why don't you tell us that? Sure. Well, cooperatives surround us no matter where we are. And as I write in the book, one in six people on the planet is a member of a cooperative. And so cooperatives they encompass every facet of our economy and of the services and goods that we might rely on or choose to purchase or choose to use. And cooperatives have been around for hundreds of years. The idea of co-ops has actually probably we could date back millennia as far as the values and intention of what a co-op is. But the simplest way to describe a co-op is it's a business or service that is created to serve the people who own it, who are members. And so that might be a consumer co-op where you have consumers who own the business. So a great example is REI in the United States or in Canada, we have an equivalent MEC, Mountain Equipment Co-op. So these are large consumer retailers selling outdoor apparel and outdoor gear that are owned by the people who shop at the store. And of course, they're also open to people who don't own those businesses. And so as a consumer co-op, I as a consumer would purchase a share in the business. And in doing so, I have a vote. And what makes a co-op so different from, say, a publicly traded company, which also uses the terminology of shareholders, is that in a co-op, there's no one person who can have any more shares than another. So it's a very democratic system that was built on equality among all of those who the co-op is serving in whatever shape or form. So that is a consumer co-op. We also have worker co-ops where the business is owned by the people working in the store. There are hybrids of worker and consumer co-ops. Many of the biggest co-ops in the United States are agricultural co-ops. So these are co-ops owned by farmers 
where farmers have pooled their resources together. Each farmer is an owner of the co-op, and the co-op, as a business, will market their products. It might acquire some of the inputs that those farmers need on the farm, and so they're using their power as a collective to serve their interests. And so that's where food co-ops come in, and food co-ops, we can find them back in the mid-19th century, some of the first formalized food co-ops, and then there were these waves of food co-ops that emerged over the past 100 years in the U.S. and Canada. Particularly, they emerge at times when people are finding themselves economically stressed or there's a financial crash. So we saw a lot of co-ops emerge out of the Depression era where people said, we can't keep relying on these big corporations that are providing us with food or feed, as is the case with farmers. We need to pool our resources together so we can be assured that we can continue to get good food and do so at a price that's affordable to us. So a lot of co-ops emerged out of an economic interest, particularly the food co-ops. Mm-hmm. How does a food co-op compare to a grocery store? Well, there's a long list. And I think one of the first ones that really is relevant to what you spoke of earlier, where we have these larger and larger grocery giants, as I call them in the book title, mm-hmm. who are becoming fewer and fewer. And so what we're finding in our communities is that the companies providing us with food, the grocery stores, are being owned by companies that are more and more distant from our actual communities that we live in. And so what a co-op does that's different is it keeps the ownership of the store local. And so that, to me, is one of the biggest differences, that the head office of a food co-op is entirely inside the store itself, most often. You know, some co-ops might grow to a size of having two, three, maybe four locations where there might be an office just down the road or in one of the four stores. But in most cases of the 230 food co-ops that exist across the country right now, the head office of that grocery store is inside the store itself. So not only does that mean there are more people employed by the co-op grocery store versus, say, just an outlet of a regional, national, or international grocery chain. But the decisions that are being made about that for that grocery store, about the future of that grocery store, are entirely in the hands of people who live in the community. And so that, to me, is one of the most substantial differences between the two models. And just as an example of, again, what is a co-op and what makes these co-ops different, so rather than a portion of my food dollar at a large grocery giant going towards the shareholders of the company who may be all over the planet, or perhaps it's going into the pockets of a wealthy family or an individual. The profits at a food co-op stay within the community. They go right back into the business. They might be put towards an expansion or a renovation. And if there's excess profit, that money goes back into the pockets of consumers through what is often called a patronage dividend. So it's a really a revolutionary model where the grocery store as a co-op is saying to its consumers, to its customers, that, hey, we charged you a little too much money this past year, and based on your purchases, we're going to give some of that money back. Hmm. And so me as a member owner of my co-op in Nelson, British Columbia, every now and then I receive a check of, it might be as low as $10, $15, sometimes it's been as high as $45, $50. And others, depending on how much they're purchasing, may be receiving checks of hundreds of dollars in return. And that is, again, a substantial difference between a grocery store and a cooperative. Hmm. 
As a rule of thumb, would you say that the price of food at a co-op is comparable to that at a grocery store? Well, it really comes down to what's being compared. The food on the shelves of our grocery stores are produced in many different ways, and so I think one of the greatest examples is some foods grown organically, some food is grown conventionally, some foods grown on a small scale, some foods grown on a large scale, and depending on those foods, let's say particularly between organic and conventional, it is generally the case that organic food simply costs more to produce than conventional food does. So no question, there are types of foods that do cost more. And many food co-ops do specialize in natural organic foods, but it's not necessarily synonymous with the co-op model. So you will find co-ops like some of the ones I visited out here in New England, where I'm at right now, that have either chosen to go about 50-50, where half the products on the shelves are conventional, the other half are either, say, natural and organic, and some even more so. And certainly in Canada, many of the co-ops in Canada are almost 100% conventional foods. So it's really not so much a comparison between co-ops and non-co-ops. It's more a comparison, really, of what's on the shelves of these stores. And it simply costs more to produce food, for example, from a local farmer growing strawberries than it would from one of these large we'll say, industrial strawberry production farms out in California, where in almost all cases, the people working on those farms are migrant laborers being paid very poorly and often living in quite deplorable conditions. And so Mm -hmm. once again, it costs more to pay a farmer fairly. And so what co-ops do do, whether they're carrying conventional food or not, is they're generally, from what I've been able to see, much more aware of the impact of that food on the people who are growing it or the people working on those farms. And so if what we are wanting is to compensate the people producing our food, whether it's a farmer or even a baker or someone making kombucha, if that's the type of food we want, I guess the real question is, are we willing to pay for it? And of course, having the luxury of asking that question, are we willing, is for a segment of the population. There's a whole lot of us as well that are simply unable to pay any more for food. Right. And so that's a really important conversation as well. And at the end of the day, no doubt there are going to be products that we'll find on the big conventional chains that are going to be cheaper than what we find at co-ops. But what I'd like to think is the more we can get behind community-owned grocery stores that aren't trying to take advantage of their customers because they're not trying to profit off their customers. I think as the co-op movement grows, the capacity for co-ops to have more buying power in the marketplace increases. Prices can begin to come down. I've seen this at our co-op. As it's grown, we've been able to purchase more and therefore offer those savings to members and to customers. And then at the same time, it's a paradox or sounds contradictory, but at the same time, we also, I think, need to make sure that we're not trying to continue to drive food prices down to the point where the people producing food either can't keep producing it and they need to shut down and move on to another profession, or as is the case with many farmers across the country, in fact, 75% of small farms today rely on off-farm income, so they're subsidizing their farms through other jobs. This is all part of what I try to explore in the book is that there is this myriad of considerations when we look beyond the price tag at the grocery store. 
Yeah. Let me take one break and remind everyone that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. John Steinman. He is the author of the book we are discussing titled Grocery Story, The Promise of Food Co-ops in the Age of Grocery Giants. John, you know what I've found is that in typical grocery chains, it's very rare to find a local or even a regional at best food item. I live in Missouri. Maybe we might have some peaches from a farm in Illinois. When I go into a co-op grocery store, I am more likely to find local produce, although there certainly is produce from California and, you know, the big producers. But for the most part, if I want to support my local farmer, I'm more likely to be able to do so, I think, at a co-op grocery store. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, that's exactly, you know, again, the motivation for the book was that certainly at the co-op that I had been a part of as a board director for 10 years, you know, this is what set our co-op apart from all the other grocery options in the city I live in. And the percentage of products on the shelves that were from the truly local area, and I say that because local is a definition that is continuing to, um, I think, expand, or some might say erode, but co-ops have generally been keeping a very defined definition of what local is. And so, yeah, food co-ops across the board have all demonstrated that they are providing significantly more local products on the shelves. So the store I'm in right now in Northampton, Massachusetts, the River Valley Co-op, which has been here for a little over 10 years, they have succeeded in being an incredible grocery store by focusing their attention as much as they can on supporting all the local producers here in this area. And so they're able to track 40% of their sales here in the store, which is one of the highest I came across in my research. 40% is of local products from here in this area. And uh, and we're not talking a small store here. This is a store that's generating close to $30 million in sales every single year. So that's not so far off from the big grocers at any given location. Yeah, I wondered wondered about that. Like, how would that compare to the closest grocery store that was a big chain? Yeah, you know, I don't have those numbers with me right now. But as far as I can remember, the research I share in the book looks at about a 6 to 8% number for most retailers. And I think that's even high for many. Those are the conventional chains that are in areas where there's demand for local mm-hmm. food. I mean, there's certainly many places across the country where the demand is just simply not there and you're, you won't find much on the shelves. Right. So it's low. You know, co-ops are by far the number one grocery store model from which to receive local food. And part of that is built into the co-op model. So co-ops, no matter what type of co-op it is, operate on seven key principles that have been sort of the backbone of the co-op movement over the past almost 150 years. And one of those principles is concern for community. And so if a co-op is operating in alignment with those principles, it builds that concern for community into how it operates. And so concern for community would be to make sure there's shelf space for local producers. And so one of the reasons we might not see a lot of local products on the grocery giant's shelves is because a lot of those shelves at the big grocery stores are for sale to the highest bidder. So that's one of the items I speak about in the book is the subject of slotting fees, where you have some of the largest food manufacturers 
paying to access their shelves. So if it's an eye-level shelf, well, that's going to be the most expensive placement in the store. If it's near the cash registers, well, that's also very expensive property within the store. And the smaller producers in our communities don't have the capacity to compete in that arena. And so grocery stores aren't just in the business anymore. The big grocers aren't in the business of just selling food. They're also in the business of selling their shelf space. Right. Now, are there any slotting fees in co-ops? No. So across the board, food co-ops have not taken on that practice. That's because, wonderful. Again, you know, food, food co-ops are committed to their communities, and it just wouldn't be possible for these local producers that all the food co-ops I've interacted with care about. Mm-hmm. Now, many communities across the United States, and I don't know, I'm assuming this might be true in Canada as well, but we see a rapid growth and significant growth of farmers' markets. So you've got maybe the same farmer who might be selling to a co-op but might also be at a farmer's market. How does that work for the farmer? Does the farmer decide on one or the other outlets, or does the farmer write a contract in advance to the co-op, or is it just an alternative for a farmer producing food for his region? Yeah, certainly an alternative. There are many producers that I've met who simply aren't interested in selling into any grocery store, whether it's a co-op or not. Going to the farmer's market is built into their business model. It's where they'll likely receive most of the food dollar, whereas, of course, selling into a retailer, a portion of that food dollar then needs to go to the retailer. So many farmers will not sell into retailers. And then, yeah, like you suggest, many do sell in through farmer's markets and also to retailers. And you might even find a farm that's running a community support agriculture initiative as well, a CSA. And what I love about food co-ops is that they have realized that, well, if these are the same people that are selling us food, then we need to support them no matter who they're selling to. And so what quite a few food co-ops that I write about in the book do is they'll create space in their parking lots once a week for the farmer's market to happen right in front of the store itself. And this is something that traditional theories of competition would say, well, wait a minute, you're inviting the competition to show up in front of your store. And of course, it's a very symbiotic relationship because you not only are inviting people in front of your store who are then probably going to walk into the store and buy some more products, But the co-ops recognize that these producers need all of these markets in order to be successful because in the case of, say, many of the producers selling into my co-op, they aren't selling enough through just our co-op to be able to grow at the level they're growing at or produce at the level they're producing at or bake bread at the level they're baking. So co-ops are able to say, we want to make sure you have a market. And so another example I use is co-ops that create CSA fairs. So once a year, the co-op will invite all their members and customers to come to the store or in an off-site location where they can meet all the different farms who are operating these CSA programs and link them up for the year so that they have their customers set for the year. So once again, this is another practice that you see many co-ops doing. Mm -hmm. Years ago, I had attended a co-op conference in Minnesota, which it's my understanding that Minnesota has the most food co-ops compared to any other state in the nation. And one of the issues that kept coming up to the surface was that co-ops depend on consumer or citizen involvement. 
And it was a challenge trying to get people into that mindset. And I want to bring forth something that you brought up that I thought was absolutely brilliant. It was a quote by Alexei de Tocqueville, and he spoke about consumer apathy. And I can't thank you enough for bringing forth this issue that he said that when we centralize and when we place the power of our needs and desires into the hands of a centralized few, he believed that people would basically develop this apathy and that it would drive consumerism in a narrow way and that we would be so focused on petty domestic interests that we would lose sight of a larger happiness. So talk to me about the importance of consumer engagement versus apathy and how co-ops can help us develop that sense of community, but also depend on a citizenry that has an eye towards community engagement? Mm -hmm. Well, co-ops really are a form of democratizing the economy. So in the same way, we really value the participation in the democratic system of our political lives. We can take those same principles and those same interests and place them into any sector of the economy where we're, we're also engaging and so, you know, this is what the co-op model does, no matter what kind of co-op it is. It allows for us to be engaged democratically with our, in this case, grocery store or credit union, which is the case, you know, credit unions are financial consumer co-ops. They're financial institutions owned by their consumers. And so it allows for us to be engaged because once a year we get to vote for the board of directors. We have a voice that is actually heard if we have a concern. Another great example of the democracy that we find within co-ops is with many food co-ops, if there is enough of an uprising among members that their co-op isn't serving their interests anymore, there's a capacity there so long as a certain threshold is met for those members to call a special meeting and an official meeting of the organization to demand and in implement change. And so I think coming back to what we were speaking of earlier of who did I write this book for? You know, I was mentioning that I had noticed there was this gap in the conversation around good food, and the gap was talking about the role of grocery stores in supporting local and good food systems. And I think part of why we have seen this gap is because there has just been this incredible concentrating of power within the grocery store sector that we have become, as you described from the book there, we have become quite apathetic towards that relationship with the grocery store, where our relationship with the grocery store has been much more one of we walk in, we buy food, we walk out. Mm -hmm. And grocery stores, if that's what we want them to be, well, that's what they'll keep becoming. And if what we want instead, though, is our grocery store to be a center of community, a place where we can consider it to be a community center, and a place where we actually have a voice in what is on the shelves and how the grocery store operates within its communities, well, then this is where the co-op model comes in. Co-ops, they really are a public institution. So there's a lot of stigma around them as being some sort of socialist or even communist organization, or perhaps they are exclusive to only a select few. But it's really the complete opposite. They are entirely open to whomever. They are welcoming to whoever wants to join, and they are institutions owned by the public. 
and they're completely voluntary, which is what makes them so incredible. And so I really think the co-op model has this capacity to thrust us out of this apathetic relationship that we have to this really important routine that can become a ritual of shopping for food. John, we're going to have to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. John Steinman, author of Grocery Story, The Promise of Food Co-Ops in the Age of Grocery Giants. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you.